Did you know that 75% of Americans are dehydrated? Water is crucial to your health. Every cell and tissue inside of your body requires water to function. And not just any amount of water, but a gallon a day could really make a huge impact on your overall health. The Hydro Jug holds a half gallon of water. Plus, it's leak-proof. There's a leak-proof seal, a wide mouth opening, a carry loop, and an integrated handle. Not only is it dishwasher safe, but it's also shatterproof. The Hydro Jug sleeve insulates your contents. Plus, the sleeve has two pockets, one for your phone and the other for small accessories such as your keys or AirPods. Every day, roughly 60 million plastic water bottles are thrown away. By choosing HydroJug each day, you are becoming part of the movement to stop the waste. You're making a difference. Just one person switching to a reusable water bottle saves approximately 217 plastic water bottles from going to a landfill a year per person. That's 38 billion water bottles in U.S. landfills per year. We can offer 10% off with the code LOVEMURDER. Head to www.thehydrojug.com to customize your jug and use our code LOVEMURDER for 10% off your purchase. Okay, Jesse, last week's story hit me really hard. That was super tragic. Where or when are we heading to this time? When a torso washes up on the shores of 1897 New York City, Newspaper journalists and detectives alike try to work out the puzzling mystery of who the dead man was and who could have wanted him killed. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, lovers, to Love Murder, a podcast about humbuggery, jiggery-pokery, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Amazing reviews this week, guys. You just made me blush so much. I love y'all. I can't even tell you. Constant blushing. Constant blushing. I'm just in a state of constant blushdom. And in case you couldn't tell by my special vocabulary words in the intro, today we have a very special episode of Yield Love Murder. We are going back to the Gilded Age of 1897 in Sweet Manhattan, And I could not be more thrilled about this story. There is just something so pure about the old fashioned ones. You definitely said the year in the intro as well. So that kind of gave it away. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. Spoiler Spoiler alert. alert. We're going to. It's a period piece. (laughs) It is. It is. So let's get right to it. It's a vintage. It was. It's Moy Vintage. <laughs> like, what's even older than vintage? I guess antique. This is an antique, antique murder story. <laughs> it was a muggy, steaming hot afternoon in Manhattan on June 26, 1897. As people flooded off of the Brooklyn Ferry, opening parasols and buying upmarket lemonade seltzers to quench their thirst, four young boys scampered through the crowd to get to the East 11th Street Pier. 
It was sweltering at 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, and the boys had just escaped their grimy brick tenements on Avenue C to find some sweet relief by plunging into the chilled waters of the East River. As the boys lounged on the pier, Jack McGuire noticed a red bundle tied up with rope bobbing towards the ferry slip. Hey, look at that. Say, I'll get it, yelled 13-year-old Jimmy McKenna, who immediately stripped and dove off the pier. He snagged the bundle of potential treasure and slammed it back to his waiting friends. The boys dragged the parcel up onto the rocks. It was large, about the size of a sofa cushion, and at least 30 pounds. It was wrapped tightly in a red and gold oilcloth. So the boys began attempting to untie the ropes, wondering what it could be. In the East River, you never knew. It could be a worthless bundle of old clothes or expensive cargo that fell off a freighter. Jimmy had reached a dead end, attempting to undo the ropes with his wet and slippery fingertips. So Jack stepped in with a knife and began to hack at the rope. In his impatience, the knife slipped and punctured what lay beneath the oilcloth. Blood began to seep through the cut. Rather than recoiling, though, Jack worked harder to free the package from the ropes. Often farm goods were transported from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and Jack thought that he may have scored a side of fresh pork. Oh, God. Um, All I can think about is how this is the beginning of the pollution of the East River. Yeah, I mean, this is not the beginning. (laughs) 1897, I think it had already been churning for a while. But yes, it was probably a lot better in 1897, except for the fact that these children are willing to eat meat that they found bobbing in the East River. It's very (sighs) concerning to me. I can't, I can't. It's very, very, very concerning. And route to the meat market. I found out all of these beautiful time period details from the meticulously researched book, The Murder of the Century by Paul Collins. Um, it's it's so insane, like how much research he did about this, that like one third of the book at the end is like all of his footnotes and research. And he went through every period newspaper of the time and dug out all these fantastic details. So Big thanks to Paul Collins for making this podcast possible today. Thanks, Paul. So yeah, he had the detail about how the boys were like, ooh, maybe it's a fresh side of pork. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I, was, I paused specifically to <laughs> listen to you, the vegan, discuss about old river pork. Eating raw river pork. But yeah, so he keeps like cutting away and he cuts away the oilcloth. And under the oilcloth was a layer of dirty burlap sack and so then he cuts that away and there was some twine on it and then the last layer was this brown coarse paper so obviously this is very exciting it's like layer by layer it's bleeding they don't know what's going on here my god so gross so the boys are now like shoulder to shoulder excited for the big reveal and i'm imagining them as like newsies like in the movie newsies like i'm the king of new york you know Wearing their hats while they're swimming. Wearing their little newsboy hats. Yep. And so finally, he yanks the paper away and the boys gasped. On the rocks lay two human arms attached to a muscular chest and nothing else. The torso, of course. Oh my God. I mean, those poor boys. 
But I got to tell you, I'm going to keep reading. There was things I found out in this story that made me think that children in the 1800s were a lot tougher than they are today. Oh, you think? (laughs) What do they call us now? They call us like lawnmower parents because we like do everything for our kids. We're not helicopter parents. We're lawnmower parents. We clear the way for them to do everything. Yeah, they're snowplow parents because we clear away all of the things in their path. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, these parents had no idea where their children were. They were like swimming in a river and finding dead bodies. The torso, of course, begged more questions than it answered. The first of which was to whom it had belonged and what type of deviant could have killed and dismembered him. During the height of the Pulitzer and Hearst newspaper wars, the case of the Jigsaw Man, as he would become to be called, would become one of the most sensationalistic murder stories to inflame the already tawdry world of yellow journalism. Okay, so let's go back to this poor soul's body. People back in the 1800s, like I said, appeared a whole lot less squeamish because apparently the boys just poked at the body part for nearly 30 minutes before (sighs) a patrolman spotted them and pulled the chest and arms to a dry pier. Then they literally let the entire street of onlookers just come and peer at the body for an additional two hours before the coroner's office finally came to retrieve it. Yeah, it was just like a, a curiosity to them. Meanwhile, the boys jumped gleefully back into the river to hunt for more body parts. They were not traumatized by this. They were like, oh, gee willikers, let's go find some more body parts. You think we can find the foot? This is CSI Children Edition. (laughs) So they did not find any more body parts, though. At the coroner's, the first assumption was that the arms and chest belonged to one of the many medical school cadavers that could be found in the area. Apparently, at this time, unregulated cadaver parts were found all over the city. I'm not sure if this was like a med school prank to like leave body parts around or just incompetence, but I gather that it was commonplace in this era to just happen upon human remains. Wow. Yes. So, however, when the medical examiner studied the corpse in front of scads of scandal-hungry reporters, he decided conclusively that the dismemberment could not be the work of any medical student he knew. The body appeared to be hacked up with a rough-toothed saw and was left with some jagged edges, which wouldn't have been the case with a trained professional student or not. This is a weird time in history. There's just kids hungry for river pork and... Body parts just turning up all over the city and and people are just like, eh. And also there's news reporters everywhere. Literally the reporters would go to the coroner's office every day and just wait to see what bodies turned up and look for a story. Oh my God, that's insane. It's like the wild, wild west. But it's east. But it's east. It's the wild, wild east. Yeah. A patch of skin had been removed purposely from the chest. The medical examiner theorized that the killer had cut away a tattoo that would have aided in identification. Oh. Stretching out and measuring the arms gave the medical examiner an idea of how tall the corpse must have been. He estimated that his height had been around five foot 11, And he believed that the man was in extraordinary shape, muscular and of, quote, magnificent physical development. He was estimated to weigh between 180 and 190 pounds. The hands were not those of a laborer. They were clean and uncalloused, 
What's more, the coroner could move each finger and arm easily, and the flesh was pliant underneath his hands. Rigor had not yet set in. In fact, the medical examiner declared that this man had been alive less than 24 hours before. The following day, a father and his eight-year-old son were enjoying a Sunday tradition of going cherry-picking in a still rural part of the Bronx when they stumbled upon yet another gruesome discovery. It was another body part, wrapped in the same red and gold oilcloth and bound with rope. This fetid package contained the midsection of a man from the ribs to just below the hips. At the morgue, the coroner put the pieces together and they formed a perfect match. Upon further inspection, the coroner was now able to identify that the missing tattoo skin had also disguised two previously undetected stab wounds. He could tell that the stab wounds had occurred while the man had been still alive. And he could also tell by looking inside the wounds that the man had been naked when attacked. Had he been wearing clothes, the force of the knife would have driven fabric threads into the wounds, but none were apparent. Defensive wounds and bruises covered the man's hands and arms. There was also some blood underneath his manicured fingernails. He had died putting up a mighty fight. Oh, God. The newspapers are all over the case. And if you think the media is bad now, you cannot even imagine how ruthless the reporters and publishers were during the height of yellow journalism. Which, by the way, yellow journalism is an American term for newspapers and journalism that is essentially kind of like the OG clickbait. It's eye-catching or scandal-mongering headlines with a casual relationship to the truth. This era invented the if it bleeds, it leads mantra, which still clearly rings true because somehow Andy and I have tricked you into listening to us talk for an hour or two every week. So people are still just very interested in murder, clearly. The journalists back in the day were actively involved in the cases, sometimes even to the point where they would accidentally sabotage the police's investigation. Okay, not cool. Not cool, guys. So the two biggest newspapers at the time were Pulitzer's New York World and Hearst New York Journal, and they were fiercely competitive about scoops regarding the so-called Jigsaw Man especially. First, Pulitzer offered a staggering $500 for any information that would lead to the man's identity. And when Hearst got wind of this, he actually doubled the offer if those tips would be made to his paper, the journal, instead. Now, that's something like $33,000 in today's money and definitely more than most people made annually in New York at the time. Wow. So that's a huge prize. So they're also doing stuff like printing a two-scale photograph of the dead man's hand. And there's just like all of this wild speculation. They would just print literally anything, like any wild idea that came to them rather than like sussing out sources. So there was an article about how the red and gold color of the oil cloth indicated that it was a mafia hit. There was even a crazy rumor that Hearst himself had purposely hacked up a medical cadaver in order to score a big murder case and thus sell more papers. Wow. Hearst was so delighted with that gossip that he actually published it in the opinion piece saying, I wish we had thought of this. <laughs> I could see someone doing that now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like all press is good press, you know? 
With the prize money on the line, hundreds of greedy New Yorkers lined up at the morgue to try to say that the dead man was someone they knew, but every single one of those people could be proven wrong. Hearst so desperately wanted to break the case that he formed a murder squad to investigate and even tasked 30 men to trace the oil cloth to the buyer. Whoa. Meanwhile, a cub reporter who usually covered the sports beat for the world, a kid named Ned Brown, felt like he recognized something about the headless corpse's smooth hands and well-muscled arms. Uh It hit Ned exactly where he might have not only encountered those hands by sight, he might have actually felt those hands on his body. It was Ned's hunch that the dead man had been employed as a masseuse at the Murray Hill Baths. What? Yep. So he's like, wait, I think this looks familiar to me. How would you know that? Like, I could never identify, like, the hands and arms of your masseuse. Whoa! I don't know. I guess it was just a hunch based on the fact that most like muscly guys of the time were laborers. Like, you know, people weren't really hitting the gym the same way. So he was like, where else are people like well muscled and in good shape, but don't have like dirt under their fingernails? I would say, but weren't there sports and stuff? Like, couldn't he have been an athlete? Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. But anyway, this was his hunch. And so he went to the Murray Hill Baths in Times Square, which was an upscale Turkish bath where gentlemen could bathe, swim, sweat, relax, and get a massage. It was nicknamed the House of a Thousand Hangovers because apparently it was the go-to spot after a night of drinking. They believed that like steaming the booze out of your body would People still do that. you. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently everyone would just like literally get shitty all night and then go in the morning over to the like 24 hour baths and they would steam and rub that poison out. So Ned goes over and gets himself a nice little steam and a massage all in the name of journalism and asked the masseuse if any employee had slacked off that week. Well, the guy was like, yes, Bill Goldensupa. He took Friday off to go look at a house in the country with his girl and he just never came back. The coworker confirmed that Bill or Willie, as he was sometimes known, was in good shape, muscled and built, quote, like a big Dutchman. He also had a tattoo of a woman tattooed on his chest in exactly where the flesh was missing from the corpse. Ruh-roh. Uh-huh. The masseuse could not tell him what the girlfriend's name was but told him that they hung out in this like German Irish neighborhood and he believed that that's where they lived. Okay. Could he not remember or could he not legally tell him? I think that there were various relationships. Like, do you know how you know some of your coworkers better than others? You know, like you're friendly with some of them in tight and other ones you weren't. Because it sounds like later they interview more of these employees and some of them have more knowledge about Bill than this guy did. It sounded like this guy didn't know him quite as well as everybody else did. And he sounded a little salty too because he did say, if you do see him, tell him he's fired. Yeah. Yep. So he's like, this is generally the area that they hang out in. 
So at that point, Ned goes drinking. He goes drinking in the Irish German area that this guy said he hangs out in and lives in. And he just starts drinking at all these bars and asking anyone if they know a masseuse named William Goldensippa. And finally, he ends up meeting this cook at one of the saloons who's like, oh, yeah, I know Willie. I don't know where he's been, but he is a naughty little boy that shacked up with his former landlady. And they live above Werner's drugstore. So that's like his next lead. So he then, (laughs) this is so fantastic. He then goes to the world and gets money to buy 30 bars of really fancy upscale sandalwood soap. And so he's going undercover as a fancy soap peddler. And he finds the right neighborhood of like the Werner's drugstore. And he starts like selling all this soap And when he's almost out of soap, he finally gets to the drugstore and he goes up to the apartment and on the doorway is a nameplate that says Augusta Knack licensed midwife. And Ned thinks that's really funny because he knows for a fact that New York does not license midwives. So he already knows that she's a liar. So he knocks on the door and a brunette woman in her late 30s answers. And she was described as not exactly good looking, but having a curiously sensual presence. (laughs) And so she wasn't exactly polite to him. He introduces himself. He says he's selling this nice upscale soap. He has two bars left. And she should really try it out because it's this apparently very luxury. It feels great on your skin. And what he's trying to do is get her to go into the other room to try out the soap in a sink so he can like case the joint and see if there's any evidence of William Golden's Supa having lived here. Okay. So he tells her that he'll give her the soap for free if she goes and tries it because he needs a testimonial so he can say like a real customer said that. Yeah. So she agrees and she takes it into the bathroom or the kitchen, wherever. And so she's washing, scrubbing up, washing her hands. And he's like, isn't it wonderful? Really get in there. Really like feel it all over your skin. And he's like saying this and shouting while he's like racing around the room, trying to look for evidence of this potentially murdered man. And he finds a portrait of a well-muscled, handsome, blonde man that fits the general look of the torso. And he steals it. He puts it in his jacket. Okay. So then she comes back and she's like, I don't want to do a testimonial, but it is good soap. So I'll take your last two bars. and I'll just give you 10 cents. And she's like, and he's like, cool, cool, cool. Fine, fine, fine. And so he leaves and he would later say that it was the best 10 cents he ever made because it did end up breaking the story. He goes back to the Murray Hills bath with the portrait that he stole from her building and he's like is this William Golden Suppa and they're like yes that's exactly him and he's like oh okay we are on to something so then he notes that the address is 439 9th Avenue that's where they were living together okay and coincidentally Hearst Murder Squad had traced the purchase of the red and gold oil cloth to a dry goods store in Astoria the customer accounts book listed the address of the buyer as, you guessed it, 439 9th Avenue, the midwife. 
So Marie Hill bath workers were called in to identify the body parts and they all confirmed that the corpse does in fact belong to William Golden Sopa based on some of his physical features, like a scar on his finger, a mole on his body, the missing tattoo. And generally like these guys worked in the nude essentially, or like very scantily clad. So they like knew the general shape of his body. Yeah, I don't know what kind of bath situation (laughs) was going on. There were so many unanswered questions in this book. What kind of bath situations going on? Yeah, I was like, this is so interesting. But yes, later you'll see that it gets even more interesting. They're like, can you identify this man? And they're like, can you take off all his clothes, please? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's basically how it went. Yeah. So when interviewed, Golden Supa's friends admitted that he was in a bit of a scandalous situation. The woman that he was living with, Augusta Knack, was not only his former landlady, but was in fact still married to her husband, Herman, and the affair had begun right under Herman's nose. Herman. Yes. So immediately, Hearst murder squad found Herman, who worked as a baker, and they attempted a citizen's arrest. So literally, the newspaper men are are arresting this guy. As they're arresting him, a nearby patrolman actually like comes on the scene and makes the official caller. So Herman was booked at the 20th precinct under the suspicion that he killed his wife's lover in vengeance. Herman, at this point, doesn't know anything about Golden Supa or this corpse. So he is like, what in the holy hell am I getting arrested for? When they explain why they think it's him, he's like, no, 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 no. Yes, we're still legally married, but me and Augusta parted ways nearly two years before when the last of their three children had died. Which, side note, nothing I read, including this book, addressed the fact that three out of three of her children had died. And she's a midwife? Yeah, and I also, I know that in... 1800s children died more often, but three out of three seems like exceptionally bad odds. So they asked him if he knew who William Goldensupa was, and he said that he absolutely did. Bill had been their boarder back when the couple was still together, and Augusta, who he called Gussie, ran off with them. However, his alibi for the day before Goldensupa was found was abysmal. He was wasted. He's like, I don't know what to tell you guys. I got off work at 2.30 and then I went to my local saloon and I got shitty. (laughs) So they're like, hmm, well, we appreciate your honesty, but the whole, I don't know, I was drunk doesn't really fly with us. However, when the investigators spoke to the saloon owner, they confirmed that Herman had been there all night, even belting out an entire set of drinking songs. Whoa. Yeah. So they were like, we can 100% confirm that he has an alibi for that evening. (laughs) And also he seems like a very good time. But there was another thing. He just generally did not seem to care that much about his wife who had run off with another man. And he genuinely seemed to harbor no ill will towards William Goldensupa. So with Herman eliminated as a suspect and evidence that she may have purchased the gold and red oilcloth, the police turned their attention over to the lady at the center of the love triangle, Augusta Gussie Knack. So when the police get to her apartment, they found everything completely packed up as if to move. 
and Gussie about to leave to board a steamer ship for Germany. Guilty. Uh-huh. It was the last day on her lease. She had given notice to the landlord only two days before. Very suspicious indeed. I do say so myself. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Knack admitted that William Golden Supa had been her live-in lover. That was until Friday, she says, when he left her for his mistress, a woman she claimed was a grocer's widow and a wanton hussy. Oh, my God. <laughs> those, are, those are some rude words for 1897. Yeah. Gussie said that after William cleaned out her bank account, the mistress had the gal to stop by and demand more of his possessions. The detectives asked her at what time this so-called mistress had come by, and she claimed why. It was that very morning. Now... Here's the problem. The police had been staking the apartment out all day and no such person had come in or out of Gussie's abode. She was lying. Yeah, you can't just like blame an imaginary mistress. It doesn't work like that, Gussie. (laughs) Gussie and her imaginary hussy. So they hauled her down to the police precinct where she told him her full name, that she was 38, and that she had been living with William for the last 16 months. Augusta explained that she married Herman Knack in 1883 in Germany and immigrated to New York three years after. She said Herman was a no-good lush who couldn't keep a job and ran off on her, so she ended up with William. Gussie has so much to say. Oh, she is sassy. Wait, Gussie is a sassy pants with a bad attitude. I feel like I was just talking about my two-year-old. A sassy pants with a bad attitude. (laughs) So she explained once more that Gulden Supa had been stepping out on her and had forced her to give him all of her money. She did not know where he was, and her intention was to return home to Germany to care for her sick mother. The cops did not believe a lick of Gussie's story and attempted to shake her with not one, but two ambushes. First, while she was being interviewed, they had Pauline Riger, the proprietress of the Astoria dry goods store, come into the room and positively identify Augusta as the buyer of the oil cloth. They're literally like she walks in and she's like, yes, it was her. And she's like, I did no such thing. Like they have her like in the room. Okay, the second thing is even crazier. At the moment that they're interviewing her, a cop comes in and he tells the captain, like, hey, you got to come out of the room for a second. We have this new evidence. So the captain goes out. He's like, okay, this is perfect. We are going to rattle the crap out of her and get this reaction that we want. And then we can really, like, you know, get the story here. So he goes back in. He has his cops set the evidence up outside of the door. So then he's planning on telling Augusta that the interview is wrapping up and that she can leave. And when she does that, he opens the door with flourish and says, do you know those? In the hallway, there were two severed human legs sawn halfway through and then snapped off. What? This, I mean, I know that they often show suspects like crime scene photos to get a reaction, but to literally this is the 1800s <laughs> way of doing it. They literally just put two severed legs outside of the door 
So she like had to step over them to get out of this office. I mean, this is beyond the pale. I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, to make matters worse, the legs were in a really bad condition. They had been Yo, rotting they- in the river for five days. So you can imagine how these legs looked and smelled. But apparently, Gussie only looked coolly at the captain and said, how should I know? Ice cold. Oh, my God. I can tell She's you that. She's like, ask not- the mistress. <laughs> mistress, if she can. Have you found that grocer's widow hussy? Also, I cannot stress how omnipresent the press were in this situation. Like literally all of these accounts come from newspaper reports where the people were in the room. So like the reporters are like just hanging out at the precinct, waiting for shit to go down to write about. Like they are getting all of these key details. It's insane. So William Randolph Hearst heard about what was going down right away. And he's like, oh, snap. That means that this bitch's apartment is up for rent because she said it was the last day of her lease and then she was moving to Germany. So he's like, I bet that piece has a ton of evidence in it. So literally this like millionaire gets on a bicycle and he bikes 50 blocks to Augusta's apartment and he promptly rents the apartment unit out. Oh, my God. And then he puts his own investigators in the apartment to look for evidence. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is wild. So he posts his own security outside the door, too. And like I said, reporters are literally everywhere. But now he can control the crime scene. So he does allow the police in, obviously, but not the other journalists. So only he will have a scoop on whatever is in that apartment. Yeah, which really sucked for Ned because Ned worked for the world and he broke the identity of William and he had found Augusta Knack and now he is being denied access to the the very same crime scene that he had discovered. So frustrated, the world reporters all stormed off to call their own newsroom to complain about what happened. And then when they did that, they found that all of the neighborhood payphones weren't working because Hearst men had cut all the cords to make sure nobody else could scoop them. Oh, my God. Isn't this wild? (laughs) So between the journalists and the police, it was soon discovered that Mrs. Knack had a third lover in her life. That's not a surprise to me. Mrs. Knacksty. An undertaker's assistant told the authorities that he had rented a horse and carriage to Augusta and a stocky, mustachioed, brunette German man, one who was definitely not Guldensupa. When neighbors were asked about this mysterious, dark-haired newcomer, they said it was yet another boarder turned lover, a barber known only as Fred, though the neighbors believed that that was not his real name. In fact, they gossiped that Mrs. Knack was said to have been getting friendly with both men until that February when Golden Supa beat the barber so badly that he had gotten a black eye. And after that, the mysterious Fred had moved out. While all of the papers broke the story of Mrs. Augusta Knack, the murderess, detectives uncovered a revolver, 
a broken saw and a butcher knife from the way back of one of her kitchen cabinets. A broken saw. A broken saw. So by now, Augusta had been charged with murder and was being held in jail. So the captain placed the broken saw, the revolver, and the butcher knife all in front of her, like literally trying to get a reaction out of her as he's interviewing her. But she would not be rattled. She barely glanced at the weaponry and maintained that she could not have anything to do with William's death because he wasn't dead. A Brooklyn Eagle reporter who witnessed the exchange said that she was the most cold-blooded woman he had ever seen. Ooh. Also, when the jail matron searched Augusta, she was found to have all of the money she tried to say Golden Supa had stole sewed into her corset. She had over $300 sewn into her corset. That's amazing. Uh-huh. Additionally, the matron said she had bruises on her arms that indicated a struggle. They looked like somebody had beat her over like the arms or she was like restraining somebody and they had fought back. Girl, it's not looking good for you. No. Was she like a stocky woman? Uh, middle. Like she was not thin, but I wouldn't say she was even especially stocky. I'm just curious because like he was a muscular. Dude. Exactly. Exactly. So this is curious. She might have had to have an accomplice. So at this point, she gets a attorney and it's really interesting. There was rumors that actually Pulitzer hired the attorney for her because the journal was now saying that the body, the jigsaw man had been identified. It was definitely William Golden Supa and that his lover, Augusta Knack, was definitely the killer. So they're already printing that. But the world, Pulitzer's newspaper, had tried to say that it was somebody else, that it was a different body and a different set of murderers. And so allegedly Pulitzer hired a attorney for her, hoping to get her off so that he could prove his newspaper's story. But this was a rumor that was unsubstantiated. So I don't know if it's true. However, her attorney did stick with her throughout the trials. So the police end up finding William's best work friend from the Bass. It's this guy named Frank. And he says that William was going to go to Woodside in Long Island to buy a house on a discount due to Augusta's work. Not midwifery, though. Apparently, Augusta performed illegal abortions and made quite a pretty penny doing so. A woman who was in a desperate situation offered to sell Augusta her last asset, a small Long Island house at a steep discount in exchange for an abortion. At least this is what she told Golden Supa. He was eager to move out to the country and start a new life with her. When he said goodbye that night to his best work friend, it was the very last time that anyone reported seeing William alive. When investigated, the rumors that Augusta's main business was providing abortions actually seemed true. She had allegedly never reported a live birth to the Bureau of Vital Statistics, which seemed extremely odd for a midwife. Obviously. It also explained why she might not be so squeamish about seeing an old pair of legs. Next, the investigators headed out to Woodside to try to figure out if that's where Mrs. Knack and her mysterious male companion had traveled that fateful Friday. 
Speaking of mysterious man friends, Gussie's paramour was revealed by friends as a German barber named Martin Thorne. The newspapers immediately all posted a portrait of the man and one detective got so many shaves trying to track down which barbershop he had worked at that he was bleeding by the time he located the fugitive's former workplace. Oh my God, dude, you gotta chill on the shaves. Yeah, he was literally just shaves in a day rolling around to every barbershop in the area, just shaving his poor face and neck to smithereens. Raw. So literally raw. So when he finally figures out where this guy worked, he ends up finding a colleague that was pretty friendly with him. And Thorne's colleague revealed that Thorne had been a boarder with Augusta and Golden Supa when he wooed Augusta behind the man's back. Apparently, the two were carrying on for months before they got careless and Thorne's suspenders were found in Augusta and William's bedroom. Oh, my God. That little minx. (gasps) So after that discovery, Golden Supa had attacked Thorne and Thorne had actually attempted to shoot him with a revolver, but the gun stuck and wouldn't go off. William beat the ever-living crapola out of Thorne and tossed him out. Hungry for revenge, Thorne asked his colleague for advice about poisoning and murdering his rival. So apparently this colleague was now a barber, but in Germany, he had been a dentist. So he was like, what kind of poisons could I use? Like, what do you know about like different sort of serums and stuff that I could use to knock him out or kill him. With William out of the way, Augusta had promised that he could move to the country with her where she would start an orphanage. Okay, three out of three of your kids are dead, lady. I don't think you should be starting an orphanage. And she also said that she had enough abortion money to fund him opening up a barbershop. So now the manhunt was on for the deadliest barber since Sweeney Todd. Back in Woodside, the cops had found a farmer that complained that his ducks had all gotten sick after eating some blood red muck and that their feathers had been tinged pink in their duck pond. So following the drainage system that led into this little pond, they discovered a house that had recently been rented out to a Mr. and Mrs. Braun who, kills surprise, matched the portraits of Mrs. Knack and Mr. Thorne. Also, what do you do after ducks eat human flesh? Oof, it can't be good. I don't know, because I feel like when animals eat humans, you have to like put them down because they've gotten taste for the flesh. Oh, maybe they like, you know, they like grow those creepy little teeth. The ducks when they have the creepy little and then they go (laughs) 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 that's how i imagine the creepy duck it's like a halloween duck you know a human flesh eating halloween duck so canvassing the neighbors they soon discovered that two men had been spotted entering the house with mrs braun at different times But later, they'd only seen one man depart. The landlord stated that the couple had paid for one month's rent, but had not yet moved in completely. In fact, they had picked up the keys, but he could not detect that anyone had been there beyond the first day. He then produced a letter from Mr. Braun that said due to a sickness in his family, he would not be able to move into the home for seven to 10 more days. It was postmarked only two days prior. So the reporters are all like, huzzah, 
that means that he's still in Manhattan. If only two days ago, he sent this letter from Manhattan, you know? Though the $1,000 reward from Hearst had already been awarded to Golden Supa's co-workers from the Murray Hill Baths, there was a rumor that whoever found the last piece of the jigsaw man, which was his head, <sighs> that the person would get a $1,000 prize. So with that in mind, over the July 4th holiday, hundreds of people, mostly children, set out to find the grisly treasure. This was the scene from The Murder of the Century. The bathroom window of the rented cottage now looked out over a sea of children. More than a thousand of them were romping through the fields and ditches of Woodside, at least one for every dollar of the imagined reward. The borough was swarming with bicycling parties as well, spurred by the fine weather and a day off. Cyclists were getting drunk and crashing wildly into the undergrowth, all looking for the ghastly prize. Oh my God. Between drinks, a world reporter dryly observed, this crowd dodged into the woods and sought for the head. Come on, little chap, let's go find the head. What kind of dank-ass Easter egg hunt are we dealing with right here? Easter And who allows their children to do that? They're probably drunk enough where they, like, don't even really think about it. I mean, I guess at that point, nobody cared about children's mental health, and $33,000 was a lot of money. Like, like, you know. How much money is that today? Well, no, no, it was $1,000, but adjusted, it would be like $33,000 in today's money. That's a lot of money. So basically, everyone's running around looking for this guy's head. And inside the murder cottage, the police had dismantled the drain system where they found evidence of blood, hair, and human viscera. Ooh. They believed they had found the scene of the murder as well as the dismemberment. Back in Manhattan, a woman reported that her husband was a good friend of Martin Thorne's and he had knowledge of the murder and Thorne's current whereabouts. Her husband's name was John Gotha, a fellow German barber and a pinnacle pal of Thorns. Especially when he went missing, apparently they listed him as like, in, he likes to wear a derby hat. He's an exceptional barber and an incredible pinnacle player. <laughs> like that was like their wanted poster. <laughs> Do you think this dude was like happy about his wife? Like wanting to Oh snitch? no, he was extremely unhappy about the entire situation. So John had actually already been questioned by the police. The police knew him and they're like, wait, was he lying to us before? And his wife was like, no, 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 no. When he spoke to you, he was being completely honest that he hadn't seen him, but he had been since contacted by Thorne. She said he refused to come forward out of loyalty to his friend. So she was forcing his hand. That marriage is not, that's not a good, that's not a good place to be in. No. So she went with the police to his barber shop and then like went in and was like the police are here with me and you have to come out so you have to leave now and you're talking to the police and then even when they got him back to the station he still didn't want to talk and apparently she like ripped into him and she was like you're gonna tell them freaking everything and you're gonna do it right now (laughs) oh my god yeah so finally he started telling them everything so he said that the day before he was just working like normal barbershop shift. And all of a sudden, Martin just turned up and like got into his chair to get his hair cut. And at this point, all of the newspapers, like I said, had his face all over the place. So he was very aware that his friend was wanted for murder. 
Yeah. And he had already shaved his own mustache, which was kind of like a trademark look for him. And so he wanted like a shorter haircut too. So he was like kind of changing up his whole look, but they didn't say anything. Like basically Gotha didn't know whether he should acknowledge the fact or like what was going on. He didn't want to alert anyone else in the shop that it was his friend. So they said literally nothing. And then as Martin Thorne is paying, he slips him a note that says, meet me at the corner too. So the guy gets off his shift. He meets him at the corner and the two end up going to a saloon where they started drinking and they talked for three hours and Thorne completely spilled his guts to John Gotha. Yeah, keep your mouth shut. Yeah, the police were naturally interested in what Thorne had to say, but their first priority was obviously to apprehend him. So John Gotha said that the two had made arrangements to meet once more that very evening at 9.15 p.m. at the soda fountain at the drugstore in Harlem. And I think this may be why his wife was like pushing the situation so hard. She didn't want him to go meet up with this murderer again. No! And also, I wouldn't feel safe until this guy was caught if he told my husband this and then he's just out on the street. Yeah, no. So the police went undercover and they managed to catch him going into the soda fountain to try to wait for John Gotha. So they apprehended him. He had been betrayed and captured and he was now arrested. Loose lips sink ships, dude. Come on. I don't know why he had to tell somebody. Isn't that crazy? together, Thorne. Yeah, he's a bad murderer. He's a bad murderer for real. So yeah, John Gotha was so worried about appearing as a stool pigeon too that he actually made the police do this entire theatrical fake arrest and beating of him and like dragging him by Martin Thorne's cell and like throwing him in a different cell and like hitting him and stuff because he was so afraid of his friend finding out that he had tattled. Smart, smart. Yeah, so they like arranged this entire thing. So well arrested, Martin confirmed that his affair with Mrs. Knack continued after Golden Supa beat him and threw him out of the apartment. He claimed, though, that he had not seen William since and that he believed that Mrs. Knack was going to leave William to be with him. He reiterated Augusta's version of events and said that he believed William to still be alive and purposely not coming forward to spite Augusta and Martin. So kind of like a gone girl over here. Yeah, yeah. Gone girl moment. Gone girl moment. However, the evidence was against him. The undertaker's assistant confirmed that he was the man who had returned the rented horse and carriage. And the landlord confirmed, of course, that Martin Thorne was indeed Mr. Braun. The strongest evidence against Martin, however, was his own chilling confession as told to his dear friend, John Gotha. Martin told John that the situation was all Augusta's fault. He said he would tell Gotha the whole story if he kept his mouth shut, which clearly he didn't. He said that he and Augusta had decided to get rid of William and had rented the house in Woodside specifically to lure him out to the quiet country and murder him. They planned it for that Friday and Augusta had purchased the oilcloth and cheesecloth that the body parts were ultimately discovered in. Thorne traveled to the house ahead of time, stripped down to his underwear to avoid blood splatter on his clothes, and waited in an upstairs room while Mrs. Knack brought Golden Supa to the house under the guise of them living there together. She encouraged him to run upstairs, and when he opened the door, Thorne shot him point blank in the face. What? However, he said, 
William did not die right away. So he had to then drag him into the bathtub in the bathroom and proceed to slit his throat to finish the job. God. He informed Augusta that the murder was complete and instructed her to leave and return for him later. Then Gotha claimed Martin then dismembered the body in the bathtub while the water ran at full blast and eventually placed the head in a block of plaster. When Augusta returned, he placed the four packages in the back of the carriage surreptitiously and he gained passage on a ferry to Manhattan. As the boat entered the slip in Manhattan and all of the passengers walked to the front to get off, he pushed the wrapped body parts into the harbor. Immediately, the head sank, but the other parts did not. Yeah, so at this point, he was really, really pissed off, he told Gotha, because he had wanted to spend time weighting down the body parts so that they would actually sink. But essentially, Mrs. Knack had rushed him and was like, it's fine. They're heavy. They're going to sink. Like, let's just get going. You know, we have to be able to carry them, you know? Yeah, but there's like air and shit in the torso. Exactly. Exactly. So he was frustrated because he felt like he knew better, but he just listened to her and he was panicked. And so now, obviously, that's how they found at least, you know, three out of four of the packages here. So he said that after that, he had pawned Golden Supa's clothes and watch, and then he had then taken refuge at a $3 a week hotel hideout. Lastly, he said to Gotha, I wish to God I hadn't told you all of that. And he insisted that he meet him the next night so they could chat some more. The authorities believed that Martin planned to lure John into an adjacent park and murder him as well if he had turned up. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, see, even though his wife forced the issue, she was right. Oh, I'm not saying she was wrong. Oh, yeah. Just that he was going to be very unhappy with her. Yeah. The wives are always right. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? (laughs) So, both Augusta and Martin are charged for the murder at this point. The only hitch in the get-along is that they can't recover the head. Based on John Gotha's account, the police and the newspaper sent divers into the harbor to no avail. There was even a rumor that the world divers had actually found the head and were keeping it from the police. So the police raided the world's offices, but there was no head. This was going to be problematic because in an era without DNA or fingerprinting, I don't even know like when fingerprinting was around, but they had no ability to use it. The no, head no was forensic files. Yeah, there's no forensic files happening in 1897, even though it seems like it's been on the air for hundreds of years. That would have been awesome. <laughs> so yeah, the the head was kind of necessary in positively identifying the murder victim here. Some did worry that Mrs. Knack and Mr. Thorne would get away with murder. Meanwhile, an unhealthy love of true crime was already alive and well, even back in 1897, because almost immediately a display of the murder of William Golden Supa was put up in a wax museum attracting thousands of visitors. So furthermore, avaricious old Gussie started charging people 25 cents to come and look at her in prison. What? Yeah, so basically she was getting frustrated. I don't know what kind of prison system this was where you could just go in and like look at somebody or try to talk to them, but she was getting annoyed with it. And then she was like, oh, you know what? I'll just make some money. So she started charging people to come in and look at her. 25 cents a pop, That's kind of amazing. 
Yeah, she's she's in jail, but she's an entrepreneur. She's hustling. She also charged the world for an exclusive interview in which she shared a sob story about how Herman Knack's abusive, alcoholic, and adulterous ways drove her into William Golden Supa's arms. She said, I first made the discovery that in addition to being cruel and neglectful, he was unfaithful to me, Augusta recalled bitterly. I caught him several times in our house with strange women. In lieu of contrition, Herman beat her and made her sleep in the cellar. I made up my mind to leave him. I considered that living the life of a slave was paradise compared to living with that man. And that, she said, was why world readers, especially woman readers, had to understand that her story was not about a murdered man, but about a wronged woman. Oh. Oh, she's spinning this. I asked those women who are so happy and who have good true husbands and pleasant families and happy homes not to judge me too harshly, she pleaded. Her concern wasn't with the murder. There had been no murder but with how people viewed her leaving her brutish husband. She was drawn to Golden Supa because of his tenderness. Was that so wrong? He was kind and indulgent of me in every way, she declared passionately, and I do not feel that I'm deserving of blame that I grew to love him. She conveniently did not mention Martin Thorne. She also then had to excuse herself, she said to the article, because she was going to crochet and make time for her devotions. She was a pious woman, she explained, and never a day goes by that I do not pray to God. Oh. But she said that she knew that those prayers were going to be answered because as long as the police and the DA couldn't find a head, she could insist that it didn't belong to her boyfriend, that body. So even if they argued and had fallen out, she said that Willie would surely come back to save her. She tried to say that this was not a sordid crime drama. It was a love story. Oh, this is great love murder. This is a very, very essential love murder case. It's a love murdery love murder. Uh-huh. As you can imagine, Herman Knack was none too pleased with these accusations because she had told the newspaper yeah, she's this. slandering him. Yeah, so he retaliated by going to the police and spilling the beans about Augusta's profitable illegal abortion business. He said that she performed the service for $25 a pop while he was living with her and that at least two of her patients had died. Ooh, and she didn't report it? Apparently not. She's more of a murderer than just of her lover here. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, technically, she's, like, she's a, me. yeah, she's like a serial killer. If you kill three people at three separate different times, you know? Uh, yeah. So what she did with the tiny fetuses, too, was something straight out of a horror movie. She would suspend them in jars of alcohol and sell them to medical schools. Oh, What? Yeah, also, were they not asking any questions? Like, where did That's these fetuses come shit. from? Yeah. He also claimed that other fetus bodies had been burned in the stove to get rid of them. Ooh, that's ruthless. Yeah. Herman suggested that there was a very dark reason that they had been asked to leave the old country 
though he didn't divulge what it was, he only threatened, if she says anything more about me, maybe I'll say something else. She knows what I could say. Ooh, there's something worse. There's something worse she did in Germany and they kicked her out. Naturally, Augusta denied all of this, but it got into the paper. So you can imagine she became like the biggest villainess to ever hit New York. It also gave the prosecutor a motive. Martin's motive had been clear from the get-go. He obviously wanted revenge for being beaten and humiliated, and he wanted to kill his love rival. But it had been kind of confusing until now why Augusta would not just have left William the same way she left Herman. The DA believed that William knew about the illegal abortions and the dead patients and threatened to go to the police if she left him. That, indeed, would be a very good motive to take him out. And this scheming witch was certainly not above killing a lover to protect her own hide. While they were both imprisoned, Augusta smuggled a note to Martin on a plate containing a sandwich and a side of potatoes. The note was under the side dish, and it read in German, Dear Martin, I send you a couple of potatoes. If you do not care to eat them, Perhaps the others will. Dear child, send me a few lines how you feel. Dear child, I believe there's very little hope for us. I feel very bad this afternoon. Send me a letter by your sister or by your brother-in-law. I wish they could procure us something so that we could end our lives. This would be best. My attorney assures me the evidence against me is as strong as that against you and that you have talked too much, which injures us, for the proofs are at hand. Good night. This was intercepted by a sheriff in the prison before it could reach Thorne, and the authorities were puzzled by her lie. The evidence against Augusta was scant, like... Other than purchasing the oilcloth, most of the evidence pointed directly to Martin. Like even in that story that his friend told, she hadn't actually done the murdering or the dismembering, you know? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Without, you know, that confession, it was possible that Augusta wouldn't have even gone to trial, you know? And then they realized that was exactly the point. Augusta was trying to convince Martin to kill himself in a suicide pact to rid herself of her co-conspirator and the only witness to her crimes. Wow. So she was trying to say, we, we should definitely kill ourselves. Okay, Obviously. you first. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> you guys couldn't see that he's but like, i did the old trick pill taking my like, pill now you didn't take that you just threw it behind you <laughs> nope down the gullet i swear mm, cyanide is delicious <laughs> yeah so nonetheless martin did not take his life and it was decided that he would face trial first in november of 1897 in order to report the absolute latest news the World and Journal newspapers placed carrier pigeons outside of the courtroom and they would have their reporters literally write the article in the courtroom while the testimony was going on and the artist do their sketches and then they would literally run out as fast as they could and attach the little notes to the pigeon who would go to the printer and they would immediately print the newspaper. Insane. This was like the latest technology. Isn't that crazy? There was like even a story where like this one artist was like really, really sad because his 
his artwork was too big for the the pigeon to carry so he had to like cut it in two and send it with two pigeons wild tandem courier pigeons exactly so yeah so this was this is a big exciting deal and martin was represented by a flashy and famous defense attorney named william f howe who was widely considered one of the absolute best defense attorneys in the city. He was quite a character who wore brightly colored and impeccably tailored suits with blinding bejeweled rings (laughs) on every single finger. Oh, flashy (laughs) indeed. He was flashy indeed. He's a real showman. He was very showy. He was very flashy. He had this big booming voice and he was very clever His plan was to discredit the medical examiner due to a previous scandal and overall claimed that there could be no murder charge because there was no proof that William Golden Supa was even dead. So this previous scandal had been where I guess it was, it's more like not the medical examiner, it's more like the the guy who worked, worked at the morgue or like oversaw the morgue. There was a situation where a young woman was found dead in a hotel room of illness like she had been sick for sure and it was found out that she was like a teenager and her Sunday school teacher had preyed upon her and started a relationship with her and they were having a tryst in the motel when she got really ill and instead of getting a doctor he didn't want to get caught with her so he just took off and left her to die oh my god Yeah. So she died in the hotel room and the scandal involving the morgue or medical examiner guy was because when her body came in, he knew that this guy was having an affair with her because he was friends with the Sunday school teacher. And instead of identifying her for who she was, he was like, I don't know, it's a Jane Doe so that his friend would get out of trouble. Oh my God. Yeah. So how knew all of this? And he planned to exploit that so that when this guy said, yes, this is absolutely Golden Supa's body. And I know how because of X, Y, and Z, he would be like, you can't trust anything this man says because of this previous scandal. Okay. So that's kind of his whole situation going into this trial. But this tactic came crashing down spectacularly when it was announced mid-trial that Augusta Gussie Knack had made a full confession and would be testifying against her lover at his trial. Wow. Yeah, so he's like, oh shit, this isn't good. The attorney was also like, how is her attorney advising her to do this? Because he knew that the evidence against Augusta wasn't very good. So he's like, why would you, she's still going to get punished. She's still going to get jail time for this. She's not getting immunity for this. So he's like, this seems like it's going to be a raw deal for her when she could have just gotten off, you know? So now he has to rethink his entire strategy, but he wasn't really like bummed out about it. He was just like, you know what? I'm just going to make her look like the murderer. That's like the new thing that I'm going to (laughs) do. The new thing. That's my new new twist. My new twist to this case. This is my new direction. So when the prosecution put Mrs. Knack on the stand, she claimed that Martin Thorne was obsessed with her and that the feeling was unrequited. She had, in fact, never been intimate with Mr. Thorne at all, which apparently he like literally laughed at that when she was like, of course, I've never been intimate with him. He's like, (laughs) come on. I'm sitting in this courtroom. Come on. (laughs) So, yeah. She claimed that in his great passion for her, he vowed to kill her beloved William Golden Suppa and choked her until she agreed to aid him. 
She said it was fear for her life that made her help lure Golden Suppa to the Long Island cottage where she participated in neither the murder nor the dismemberment, but admitted to buying the oil cloth that his body was found in. On cross-examination, Howe managed to catch Augusta in so many lies that it was just, its you're following it and she just cannot keep up with what she's lying about. And he's tricking her just at every juncture. He's getting her left and right. So she's completely flustered. And I think the, the big problem was that not only was she trying to save her own skin in regards to the murder, she was also very concerned with appearances she was trying not to look like this like woman who had like three boyfriends and was legally married you know like she that didn't look good at the time so she's trying to like paint a different picture of herself but that's also just all lies it got so bad that eventually the entire courtroom were like laughing after every answer and Paul Collins said in his book that the packed courtroom erupted into laughter and whoops. Her testimony ended and a reporter marveled in a scene of disorder in the courtroom, which in all probability had seldom, if ever, been equaled in this state. The DA and her attorney stared on miserably through the chaos as the judge gaveled the room to order. Their star witness was pinned between lying to beat the rap and lying to stay respectable. How knew this and he had destroyed her on the stand with it. Unfortunately for Howe, his brilliant cross-examination was quickly overshadowed because just as the embarrassed Augusta got off the stand, a juror attempted to get up and then fell over, moaning in pain. The courtroom erupted in alarm and the judge called a halt to proceedings. The reporters went wild. In the midst of a murder trial, another man was dying before their eyes. Insane. This is so high drama. The juror, a man named Magnus Larson, was rushed to his hotel room, which not the hospital, his hotel room, where he was loaded up with morphine and operated on upon the spot. The juror's appendix had burst and his abdominal cavity was full of pus. Huh? Uh Uh-huh. So he managed to patch him back up. And the surgeon was hopeful that he would recover, but he was like, he is going to be laid up for a minimum of three weeks, if not longer. He can't participate in the trial any longer. And at this point, they were like, okay, well, can we go forward with just 11 jurors? But they didn't want to do this because the last time that a case had gone forward with 11 jurors, it was successfully appealed later on and the person got off. So they were like, okay, we don't want to do that. And instead, a new trial was ordered with 12 new jurors. And what's crazy is that the prosecution and defense were only given 10 days to prepare for the new trial. So yeah, this is, this is actually a fun historical fact because it is because of this exact case and this trial situation that we have an alternate juror system in America now. Stop. Yep. So now what happens is there's always a couple extra jurors who listen to the entire trial, but don't actually deliberate. So yeah, at the end, exactly. So if something does happen, they have all of the knowledge, they've been presented with all the information. But yeah, if they're not needed, they just kind of like walk away then. Yeah, because she essentially gets a do over with her 
She gets a do over. <laughs> the pros- yeah. prosecutor gets a do over. Now yeah. also, you know, how doesn't get blindsided in the middle of his trial and have to switch tactics. So I think yep. actually all the parties were kind of cool with this at this point. Okay. While awaiting the new trial, the DA sneakily forced the jail barbers to let Martin Thorne's signature mustache grow back in. So they wouldn't give Martin Thorne, obviously, anything that he could shave himself or do anything to. Yeah. Because it would be dangerous, clearly. You can't give them like a straight razor. But also, they would literally shackle him when he got his barber cuts because they were purposely making his mustache grow back in. Okay. So this was kind of sneaky because he, A, wanted the witnesses to recognize him, but also there had been so much negative press about Martin Thorne and pictures of him with this bushy mustache that I think he wanted the new jury to associate him with all the bad press he had gotten. Yeah, yeah. So Howe tried to offset this by getting some good PR for Thorne. He had this famous Broadway actress come visit him in prison and have some newspaper reporters there when she visited. And she was basically like, oh, this poor man just did it for love. And now he's abandoned and stuff. And so people were like really into that. And I guess people seem to think that he was like a relatively good looking guy. So he had a bunch of crazy ass female admirers who sent him flowers and tried to send him food and said he was hand. It's just so weird. It's so I did not get it. You and I have talked about this a million times, the whole like writing to prisoners, all of this stuff. I have such a fascination for true crime and I don't want to give any murder the time of day. Yeah, I have no desire. Or people who think like murderers are cute, like gross. So. The new trial started and just like our listenership, actually, the gallery was just full of women. And this was in an era where they were like, oh, this is too gory for a woman's sensibilities, you know, but they were like, no, you got a lot of sin. So it was like the the gallery was like 80% or more women, which is crazy. Yeah. And these uh, respectable, genteel, true crime enthusiasts were about to be scandalized. Because the next bit of testimony was sexual, sordid, and shocking. So the defense attorney Howe argued that he believed that the body didn't even belong to William Golden Supa, as the identifying characteristics were extremely common. It was a mole on his arm and a scar on his finger. So in the initial trial, he had tried to make the argument like even pulling witnesses at random and being like, do you have a scar on your finger on the spot? And like one of them did. So he's like, yeah, it could be anyone. We don't know that it's him. So the DA brought up several of Golden Supa's co-workers to testify that there was one very specific way that they could identify William conclusively that had not been listed in the papers. They identified him based on his extremely peculiar penis. Stop it. Stop it. Apparently. Oh, no. Poor Willie's Willie. The the case of the peculiar pecker. <laughs> yes. So apparently, like I said, the men were often nude in the baths together. And Golden Supa's bizarre privates were somewhat famous. From the murder of the century, here's a snippet of the testimony. He had very peculiar privates. Coworker Herman Specht struggled to explain. This peculiarity of the penis, the DA went on, turning to the crowd and then back to the massage therapist, uh, was that so noticeable as to attract the attention of the other bath rubbers. 
which I guess is what they called the masseuses. Yes, Specht admitted many times. What can you say? Here the DA drew out one of the morgue photographs as to the penis of exhibit number five. That's the one, he replied. The most peculiar thing was his penis, a third co-worker reminisced. Like where he was circumcised on the head of his penis, underneath from the head, he had a lump of skin hanging, which he could stretch. Ladies in the gallery gasped, but the masseur had only just started. I saw him stretch it at least two and a half inches, he added brightly. Wait, so it's like, <laughs> so, like loose skin? Like so, it circumcised him properly? It, it sounds like a botched circumcision. So, so the coroner gets up there. And the coroner is trying to say, well, we know it's, it's Golden Supa because there's this specific type of mole. And he's like trying to get into the science of what type of mole it is and why it's more rare than you'd think a mole is. And also this scar. And the DA just keeps bringing it back to the penis. He's like, he's like but did you know notice- the penis? <laughs> he goes, but did you notice the penis? He demanded. Yes, the coroner sighed. I am coming to that. A very peculiar penis. The peculiarity consisted in the fact that the upper portion of the foreskin was absolutely denuded down to the body of the organ, leaving no foreskin on top, but a long pendulous foreskin beneath it. He then produced a drawing that he'd made and held it out. I have a piece of paper here to illustrate that with I object, bellowed Hal. The galleries burst out into laughter and Judge Maddox gaveled the crowd to order. He'd expel them all from the courthouse if he had to. Put the penis schematic away, he told the coroner. Oh my God, so much. I haven't talked about penises this much since I was in my 20s. There's so much on the line here. There's so much on the line here, but I don't know how how he's going to argue that that's not William Golden Soup at this point. Even worse, I mean, I feel bad for this guy. Clearly he was betrayed, dismembered, and his head is lost. But then they cut off his dick and put it put it in Wait, alcohol. And cut they, off his dick? The coroner cut off his dick and put it in, like, an exhibit. Why? Because and was, it was, like, peculiar? showing it around. Yeah. It was showing off his weird dick after the fact. It's evidence, babe. It's just evidence. <laughs> but then I was like telling the story to Nathaniel and he's like, so his ghost is just going around headless and dickless? So after that scandalous bit of testimony, the judge ordered that women were no longer allowed in the gallery. <laughs> he's like, if I had known we were going to be talking about penises all day, I would have never allowed them to begin with. And no longer can their virgin mirrors hear about weird dicks. I will not allow it. So yeah, at this point, the trial took a break for the Thanksgiving holiday and the jury was sequestered at the Garden City Hotel, which had been designed and built by none other than Stanford White, who you may remember from episode number 34, Evelyn Nesbitt and the Revenge Killer Millionaire. Guys, if you have not listened to that episode and you are enjoying this episode and you like the old timey ones, I strenuously suggest you go back and listen to episode 34. Okay, so upon a return to trial, John Gotha took the stand to discuss Martin Thorne's saloon confession and how sought to destroy his credibility by revealing that Gotha had received money in exchange for his testimony. Now, it was kind of a more tricky situation than that. Essentially, he lost his job because of the notoriety of the trial. 
And he essentially said, like, I can't testify because I have to find work because I'm going to get evicted. And they were like, if we just pay your rent, will you come and testify at the trial? And he was like, okay, sure, whatever. But of course, like, how could twist that to make it look like he had just lied to get money? Okay. So that's essentially how he was working that angle. And then the prosecution rested without calling Augusta Knack, which shocked everyone, including William Howe, because A, that was their best witness, and B, William Howe's entire strategy was going to be going after Mrs. Knack, and now he couldn't, you know, make fun of her on the stand again. Oh, my God. So, yeah, the DA did not believe that she was going to be a good witness because she had hurt their case so badly. And I guess she was impossible to coach. So they were like, she just sucks. We're not dealing with her. I think that was a wise decision too, because it sounded like she was a nightmare on the stand. Yeah. So William Howe's story of what really happened was that it was in fact Augusta who was the murderess, not Thorne. Martin testified that he believed he was going to look at a house that he and Gussie were to live in together when she left William and he was shocked when he arrived and discovered that she had shot her ex-lover dead. He had admitted that he had helped her dispose of the remains out of love and fear, but he maintained that he did not kill his rival. He also claimed that it was Augusta who dismembered the body as she had more expertise in anatomy as a midwife. He said that she was killing and dismembering the entire afternoon of Friday, the 25th of June. It's a casual Friday. TGIF, am I right? But the prosecution had a rebuttal witness, a schoolgirl neighbor of Augusta's who testified that on that very afternoon, she saw Mrs. Knack trimming her hat at the exact time that Thorne claimed she was hacking up her lover's body. Oh, well, it Aww. seemed that the jury was inclined to believe the innocent 13-year-old schoolgirl over the murderous barber because the verdict came back guilty. Martin Thorne was convicted of murder in the first degree, which, can you imagine what kind of punishment that carries in 1897? Beheading. I don't think they had done beheadings. Anytime recently. No, it's death, of course, yes. But he's going to the electric chair. So obviously, Martin was depressed about this. But he told the newspapers that no one needed to worry about him committing suicide as he would not spare the state the expense of his death. He's like, I want this one to cost you, boys. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was bitter. His attorney, William Howe, made some creative appeals to overturn the conviction, including one where he brought up the receipts from the hotel that the jurors had stayed in. And apparently, like, at dinner time and stuff, they had drank wine and beer and worked up, like, quite a little bar tab. And so he tried to file an appeal based on the fact that the jurors were drunk and they weren't able to properly deliberate and <laughs> in good thinking, you know, unsurprisingly, that did not work. And Thorne was moved to death row at Sing Sing Prison. While Martin Thorne was awaiting the electric chair, William Golden Supa was finally laid to rest. And Augusta made a plea deal for 15 years in prison. With good behavior, she would likely be out in nine. She sent her erstwhile lover a fruit basket with the following note for Christmas. Oh my God. <laughs> Speaking of raw, seriously, you got this guy literally killed and now you're sending him a fruit basket. 
She wrote, Dear Martin, it is Christmas time. I send you greeting to your lonely cell at Sing Sing. Stop it. <laughs> Stop. The Robins here are so rude. I have found great peace with my own heart since I put my whole case in the Lord's hands. Let me say this to you, Martin, that I can send you no better gift than that you seek the Lord while he has given you time. Martin, it is determined by law that you must die. Find peace before you go. Then you are not afraid of what man can do. Love, Augusta. She's a pious bitch. Oh my God. So apparently he was super mad and immediately upon reading it, just tore it into smithereens. And the reporter who was there was like, well, do you want the fruit? And he was like, eh, he shrugged and he took the fruit basket. <laughs> Eight months after the guilty verdict, the governor of New York refused a stay of execution and Martin was sent to the electric chair. Well, even first husband Herman Knack couldn't escape the fatal curse of Augusta's love. In 1903, almost exactly six years to the day of William Golden Suppa's murder, Herman committed suicide by drowning himself in the Hudson River. Whoa. Yeah, I guess he was extremely affected by the death, both like because he knew William and he knew Augusta, but also because it was very hard for him to maintain a job people would recognize him. And there was also still all of that bad press about him. It was very, very traumatic and he could no longer live. The legacy of Augusta Gussie Knack's love rectangle resulted in three deaths, one murdered, one murdered by the state and one suicide. The unlikely seductress was let out of prison one year after her husband's suicide in July of 1907. She returned to New York where she lived an unremarkable life, peddling small goods from a shop until she died an unremarkable death. The detectives on the case noted that neither Augusta or Martin's account of what happened that day really made sense with the evidence. The stab marks indicated that William had been stabbed from above while naked. Neither story accounted for that or an empty bottle of wine that was left at the cottage. Author Paul Collins's theory is that Augusta seduced William with wine and the last roll in the hay, effectively straddling him and then stabbing him. When the stabbing failed to kill him right away and he fought back as evidenced by the defensive cuts on his hands and the bruises on Augusta's arms, only then did Martin Thorne step out of the closet and shoot William Golden Supa in the head. So that's what the author thinks happened that fateful day. And basically the reason why their stories didn't match up is because they were both implicated and neither one of them was trying to admit any guilt themselves. Yeah, neither one of them were saying the truth about anything. <laughs> exactly. And they think that the reason why the version he told John Gutha it was different was because he didn't want to admit that he watched his woman have sex with her boyfriend before he killed them. Uh, William Golden Sippa's head was never found. So it is still out there in the Hudson River or the East River. East oh, River, I guess. Yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, guys, that was some historical murder. If you like these ones, let us know. I love doing the historical murders. You know, I try not to do them too often. But yeah, this was a wild one. And I'm glad you were along with us for the ride. In conclusion, if you need a midwife, maybe check out the sources. 
double check that she has registered any live births with the Vital Statistics Bureau to make sure that you and your baby are in good hands. Any would be great. Even just one. Yeah, just one. Also, if you have a peculiar penis, maybe you should be a naked masseuse. I don't know. I think, I think that you got to own that shit. And it looks like he was really proud of that thing. I guess just stay out of trouble. You know? Just stay out of trouble, you know? You're going to get identified by your peculiar penis. Yeah. Or if you're going to murder a man with a peculiar penis, I guess. Discard. <laughs> oh, God. This is getting dark. Okay, guys. In conclusion, as usual, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye. Love you. Thank you.